big question that's being posed to the industry now is how generative AI will affect the music business. It's, it's still early stages for the technology. The world beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michael Mack. Hello, I'm Michael Mack, and welcome back to my podcast, The World Beyond the Emotion Years of Tomorrow. Today, my very exciting guest is Mike Zuckery. He's a highly sought-after advisor for industry-leading theme parks with location-based experiences. He was most recently head of Disney's location-based experience division. I'm thrilled to have you here and talk to you. Thanks for coming, Mike. It's my pleasure, Michael. I love your podcast, and I'm delighted to be part of it. Let's start with a quick fire round of four questions to get you know a little bit more. Please answer as briefly as possible. Let's dive right in. Are you ready? I'm ready. One. What is your favorite hobby currently? I'm fortunate that my vocation is also my avocation and that's seeing the best theme parks, shows, and attractions on Earth. Two. Which fictional character do you most identify with? I used to work with the Muppets, so I'll say Kermit the Frog. He's an optimist, dependable, a good friend, and... He stays calm in the midst of chaos. Three. What's the craziest rumor you ever heard about Disney? I think the craziest rumor is that Walt Disney is either buried in the park or is cryogenically frozen. Four. If you had the opportunity to travel in time, where would you go? I've seen enough sci-fi movies to know that going back in time can break the space-time continuum, so I would like to go 100 years in the future to see what's ahead of us. Thank you. To begin the talk, I always like to challenge my guest with a provocative statement question. Will you allow me to provoke you a bit? Absolutely. Wonderful. Here is my provocative question. With pandemics and great digital at home entertainment options on the rise, it is not perhaps outdated to be laying so much focus on location-based entertainment? Well, as we know, many people did a great job of staying entertained during the pandemic. Whether it was playing video games or getting a VR headset, baking bread, buying an exercise bike, uh, or getting a big TV and watching streaming services. But these kinds of activities at home have a limited impact on our happiness. During the pandemic, 50% of people were suffering from depression or anxiety, in part because people really needed to connect with their friends and family. And fortunately, technology allowed us to do through Zoom, VR, and other means. During that time, I even organized online reunions of friends and classmates from all over the world, which was so meaningful to the participants and never could have happened in person. But it turns out that being out in the community and connecting to our tribe is not only fun, but it's also vital to our mental health and well-being. In the end, we are all really social creatures. And as soon as we could get out of our homes, people returned to theme parks and other location-based entertainment in record numbers, as I know you experienced at Europa Park. Uh, when looking at your CV and your areas of expertise, one can't help but notice how exciting and diverse it is. Film and television, home entertainment, mobile and online, then working for Disney. Can you walk us through your life until now and explain how all of these amazing things happen to you? Well, I have loved entertainment my entire life. Uh, my earliest memory is going to Walt Disney World as a small child. And a few years later, my family moved to California. And the first things we did were to go to Universal Studios and Disneyland. In college, I loved live music and theater. So I adapted Pink Floyd the Wall into a rock opera and directed it for the stage. 
I also studied Italian, and when I graduated, the largest entertainment company had just started in Italy. The largest entertainment company in Italy had just started making movies in the U.S. So I interviewed there, was hired, and it became a 13-year career in the international film and TV business. I then worked for a large home entertainment retailer called Columbia House and for startups in the mobile and online content space, largely licensing video, music, and more from major rights holders. But in 2011, I joined Disney doing business development for consumer products, digital projects, and live shows with IP ranging from the classic characters like Mickey Mouse to the Muppets and Star Wars. But working at Disney reminded me that what I really loved was theme parks and location-based entertainment. I also had a young son at home who loved roller coasters and wanted to ride the best ones around the world. So in 2017, I moved to 20th Century Fox to run their themed entertainment division. And as luck would have it, Disney announced three months later they were going to buy Fox. So I was back at Disney shortly thereafter. That sounds very exciting. And, you know, I'd love to talk about a bright variety of topics. And um, you have so many um, skills in your past life. I would just touch on a couple of them, like talk about music. Um, I would be very interested to hear your vision about the changing of the industry, uh, the music industry in particular. Will artists be more globally relevant or will... Um, IPs, big IPs make a big impact on the music or gaming? Or how do you see the artist in the future time? There's just still Rolling Stones out there. Uh, I mean, we do see it with Taylor Swift that still a lot of people go into the uh, concerts. But what do you think is the future of uh, music when it comes to entertainment and the development? Uh, sure. The music industry has undergone tremendous transformation, as you know. For those of us who grew up buying albums and CDs, Uh, the fact that you can carry around a device in your pocket that'll play virtually every song ever released is still incredible. There is definitely still growth in the streaming business. Like you just alluded to, we're seeing artists monetizing live performances like never before. A big question that's being posed to the industry now is how generative AI will affect the music business. It's, it's still early stages for the technology, but the potential around music creation and customization is tremendous. I just read a recent study that said 60% of surveyed artists said that they would use AI in their music projects and only 28% said that they wouldn't. But a downside of that is the potential for AI-generated voice soundalikes to be used for questionable purposes. Uh, fans are using those voices with their favorite artists to create songs or videos and also using signature sounds and hooks from these artists. A lot of artists are sounding the alarm about this. This is also coming up in the film and television business. So... The industry is really trying to figure out guidelines around this, both to protect artists' rights and also protect their own businesses. And there's a lot to be figured out. But artists are uh, figuring out how to use it to their benefit, whether it's creative inspiration or the ability to collaborate with an AI musician. And I think the artists are going to find ways to use AI to engage with fans on their own terms. I also think in-person connection is going to become even more important, that artists are going to create more elaborate concert experiences, VIP experiences, subscriptions, and new artists really need to be creative to break through. Certainly, music and performances can go viral, but some of that is luck. What is a really interesting trend, and this has been going on for a long time, but, but we're seeing what's called the crossover effect, where different types of artists are getting together to do a collaboration. And great examples of this are SZA and Phoebe Bridgers doing Ghost in the Machine or Lil Nas X 
and Billy Ray Cyrus and Old Town Road, where it's really bringing audiences to new artists. I think technology is really key here. You know, any of us who listen to streaming services get recommendations for new artists uh, based on algorithms. And AI is now enhancing that where you almost have your own personal DJ. You asked about artists being globally relevant. I think technology and social media have really made it easier to be exposed to international artists, even though it's still a small percentage of artists who have a global fan base. But a great example of this, uh, last year, Selena Gomez collaborated with the Nigerian Afropop star Rema on Calm Down, and their audiences both grew exponentially in each other's reasons. We also see local genres now sometimes reaching international audiences. Until 10 years ago, few people outside of Asia really knew what K-pop was. And for millions of people, Psy's Gangnam Style was the first K-pop song uh, they ever heard. And that's thanks to YouTube. And now K-pop is a global sensation. And you have bands like BTS and many others, you know, that have hundreds of millions, if not billions of fans worldwide. What makes me a little bit afraid is that, I mean, if you look at the digitalization of our world, that um, it's not necessarily that the content has to be created. It's more the algorithm, like um, distributing it. Well, how can we keep creativity? I mean, you talk about you get the music automatically when you put your Spotify uh, on because the computer is recommending something to you. How do we have the chance of finding small talents, you know, maybe great artists? Um, how do they have a chance to get big? Because I think the venues are getting more and more expensive. I mean, if you just look at the Sphere in Las Vegas, right. I mean, small bands most probably can never perform there, so... So isn't there like a huge entry barrier for young, talented uh, musicians out there? It is certainly difficult. I think where you're really seeing opportunities for these kinds of artists, aside from social media and recommendations from friends, is things like music festivals, where people are going for the headliners, but certainly many of the bands that I now love are ones that I discovered who were either other ones playing at festivals, supporting acts on a bill. There are all of these ways that artists can slowly get out. You know, you're starting to see even things like concert cruises, destination weekends, where there might be an artist headlining, but the artist will bring in a load of other smaller talents who they personally like and think their audiences will like. And then those artist audiences can grow. So to stay with the last question on the music sector, do you think technology is the key to success uh, in the future? I think technology enhances the experience. You know, certainly you, we talked about streaming services like Spotify. Um, you mentioned the sphere. You know, everyone now on social media seems to be talking about you two at the sphere. And anyone who's gone, no matter how big a fan they are, comes back and is just dazzled by it. That it's it's an incredible use of integrating technology and having technology serve the music as opposed to the music being perhaps customized around the technology. I think another great example of that is ABBA Voyage in London, where anyone of our generation would not have the opportunity to see ABBA Live, and they came up with a very creative way leveraging technology that even though you're essentially watching giant LED screens, 
the thousands of people there every night feel like they're at an ABBA concert in the late 70s, early 80s, and it's a fantastic communal experience. So I think those are examples of where technology is going, being integrated with music. But still, I do believe, I mean, you're talking about some great venues, you're talking about U2, it's a huge band being out there for many, many years. You talk about ABBA, who's been there forever, literally. I did see the venue in London, and I was thinking to myself, because technology is so expensive, you know, don't you have to be first an IP to get the chance to use new technologies? I think I'm seeing much more IP being transferred to the music industry. Um, I mean, certainly for, for those experiences, which are, you know, range from the hundreds of millions to the billions of dollars, you need to be a huge band. But I am seeing, even in smaller concerts where they're leveraging technology, be it something as simple as light up wristbands or even interactive apps that, that interact with the concert, there are little pieces of technology that engage the guests that can really be a lot of fun. But I think where technology really has a huge benefit is allowing guests to connect more directly with their fans. Even I've had, uh, you know, little online groups where you can have some kind of interaction with your favorite artist. And that's something that would not have been possible, you know, 10 plus years ago. So you're creating a lot of these micro groups where people can get excited about artists and, and those can expand. And really communities are being created around them. I have a number of friends now that I've met through an artist that I love and we share our love of that artist and people go to concerts together and it creates a, a larger community through technology. So literally what you're saying is like creativity is in combination with using new technologies to get the attention on the market out there. I think so. Excellent. Let's move a little bit to home entertainment and cinemas. Um, they, home entertainment seems to largely have stayed the same in the past few years. How do you predict this will develop in the next few years? And uh, talking again about technology, um, is home entertainment ready for AR and VR? Well, during the pandemic, as we know, there was a huge surge of streaming services. And also millions of people wanted VR headsets in part because they were stuck at home and virtual reality expanded their world outside of their house or home. I think that going forward, AR, VR, XR will continue to grow as a source of at-home entertainment, both for people on their own and also to connect with others. And for video content, streaming services has given us more content than ever to choose from. And the industry is now figuring out what is and what isn't working. And in the next few years, we're going to see increased curation, consolidation, et cetera, to allow these services to be profitable and sustainable. You asked about the future of AR, VR technology. You know, I think back to the book Ready Player One, which I loved and imagined this rich virtual world that in theory is as fulfilling or more so than the real world, but I think that's far off. Uh, as we've seen, Meta has invested billions of dollars in the metaverse, but so far there hasn't really been um, a critical mass there. In theory, VR is a great way to watch a movie at home, but it's not quite at the point yet where it's as good as watching a movie on a big TV, and it's not as much fun as watching with your family or friends. However, like I love playing games in VR, and I also love being able to use it to connect with friends who live in other cities or other countries. And it's a very special, unique kind of connection, but it's still something that we can only do for limited periods of time, just given the nature of the hardware. So I'm really excited to see 
the capabilities of the Apple Vision Pro and other similar technology once it gets to a consumer level price point. But also, I think location-based VR is another story. And some of those experiences, like what you have done with Yulby, are transformative and can be really entertaining. What would you say, like, in the timing frame? I mean, we talked a lot about uh, VR. Uh, I can remember in, like, the last 10 years, we talked about the VR. And now we have the first MR and XR glasses out there. We're using one here in the park at our new Eden Mena. But still, technology is still bumpy and not really um, convenient. What do you think, how long it'll take to be around the world the same, like you have a DVD player, which you don't have now anymore, but um, what do you think, how long it'll take to that everybody has a XR or VR headset at their homes? Do it, does it need Apple to get a, a breakthrough for that technology? I think it really needs to have that application that people feel is better than what they have now. I, I have probably personally introduced hundreds of people to VR, whether it was something as simple as a Samsung Gear or a MetaQuest or even a Google Cardboard where they saw VR for the first time. And people are always amazed by it. And it's fantastic to see that reaction that people have. But then many of them don't use it again or haven't used it again. That There's nothing yet that for the masses is really quite sticky and feels better than what they currently have. So we always see very rosy predictions of the expansion of this, but I think until there's something that has that significant difference that you feel it's really enhancing the experience to the point that it's better than what you have, it's not going to reach that kind of critical mass that you described. So I think it's still a number of years off for it to be really, uh, to have mass adoption at that level. So you don't think that Apple changed the game with their new glasses coming end of the year? I think it has potential to change the game. Right now it's at an extremely high price point. And I think it's going to take a couple of years to come down to a point that a large percentage of people are going to have it in their homes. Unfortunately, I've just seen the demos. I haven't gotten to try it yet. So it looks incredible, but I'll withhold judgment until I actually get to use it. But if anyone can do it, Apple can. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about cinemas. Um, I mean, you're an expert in the industry. You've been working for so many companies. Do you see home entertainment more of a given safe bet, or do you think they need to be able to compete with location-based entertainment options? Well, as a result of both the pandemic and the rise of streaming services, more viewing is taking place at home than, than before. Cinemas are having a good year, but they're still about 20% lower in terms of box office than pre-pandemic levels, and even more when you adjust for inflation. Cinemas need to innovate to draw people in, and cinema going is currently dominated by younger audiences who go because they want to go out with their friends and family. I think we saw something incredible just that the horror film Five Nights at Freddy's which was based on a nine-year-old video game, grossed $130 million this weekend, but it was also available day and date on Universal Streaming Service. So many people watched it at home, but millions of people also paid to see it in theaters because they wanted to see it on a big screen with friends and with a crowd. So there's really still an opportunity for both in the market. Regarding the content of movies, series, etc., do you think the trend will go back to independent, diverse movies or even more towards having huge franchises, brands, and IP? This is a little bit the question I was asking earlier with musicians, you know. I mean, is it all IP-based in the future and just the winner takes it all? Like, the big corporates have, like, huge IPs and um, 
You have like the small bands, small diverse movies, which just have a very um, sharp niche, but not the gross numbers. So I grew up and early in my career, a big focus was on independent films. So it's an area that I'm very passionate about. And I always loved seeing independent films in theaters. But I will say that now I generally watch them at home. And that's in part because big screen TVs have become inexpensive. Many of these films are not necessarily ones that uh, that people feel they have to see on a giant screen or with a huge crowd of people. And there will always be a market for these films, but they are more likely to go straight to streaming services where they don't have the huge marketing costs that you need to have a wide theatrical release and break through to a big audience. Some will certainly continue to get small theatrical releases for prestige or for certain award consideration. And there's always that sleeper hit that could take off, but just the economics of this business make it more likely that that business is going to migrate more to uh, to at-home viewing. Perfect. Here comes my last question to you on this first part of the podcast, Mike. Seven years from now. How do you think the world will have changed in seven years' time regarding traditional entertainment options like film, television, music, etc.? I think we will see consolidation over the next seven years. More content than ever is being produced. And while a lot of it is really great, the addressable market has not grown that much. So a lot of that programming, frankly, has low viewership and also can't be monetized like it was five to 10 years ago uh, with various windows and, and different distribution platforms. So we're in the early days of AI, but I've seen some of what it can do and there's potential for us to get highly personalized content seven years from now where what we consume is tailored to our individual tastes. It almost sounds like an episode of Black Mirror, but it is possible. Excellent. Thank you very much for being here, Mike. Oh, thank you for having me. You, you cover so many interesting topics on this podcast, and I'm delighted that I could be part of it. We will continue this exciting talk in part two, where our focus will be location-based entertainment, theme parks, and your experience working for Disney. Be sure to tune in again next week. Michelle Mark presents The World Beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.